What do you see when you look at your city? What do you see when you look at your church? What do you see when you look at yourself? Do you see nothing but broken piles of junk and rubble? Because when God looks at you, he sees a future and a hope. The Bible tells the story of Nehemiah, a man whose heart broke when he saw the ruined walls of Jerusalem. But in that rubble, he also saw hope. He saw the tools to rebuild. It's time to see our city the way God sees it. It's time to see our churches the way God sees them. It's time to see ourselves the way God sees us. It's time to rebuild. I love that song we just sang. I love the images in it. Think about that. Let what's dead come to life. God, let your fire fall down. That is a description of revival. When God brings revival upon a church, upon a nation, And uh, this Wednesday night, I want to invite you to come to the gathering. We are going to be specifically looking at that subject of revival. We're going to look at some instances in history where revival has come. We're going to be looking at some contemporary examples around the world of where revival is happening, where what's dead spiritually is coming to life, where, where, you know, metaphorically God's fire is falling down. Invite you to come, 5.30 for dinner, 6.30 for the gathering. Uh, We're done at, at 8. I'm excited to be here this morning. I was at the men's retreat until last night, and uh, just what I saw there really encouraged me, the connecting that's going on with men, the, uh, the challenge that's going to our, our men at the men's retreat that I think we're going to see some fruit from in the weeks and months to come. And I'm excited to be back in the book of Nehemiah. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 6. If you are visiting, we're glad you're jumping in this with us. We're in the midst of a study going chapter by chapter through the book of Nehemiah. And just to bring you briefly up to speed, at the beginning of the book, God speaks to Nehemiah. God puts a burden on Nehemiah's heart. And that burden very specifically, as it's articulated in chapter 2, verse 18, is a burden to rebuild the broken walls of Jerusalem. Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Babylonians, but the Persians had allowed this small group of Jews to return. And God sends Nehemiah to rebuild the walls, not just so the city will be secure, but to restore God's glory to Jerusalem. He says, come let us build the walls of Jerusalem. And here's the thing, we're not just studying history here. We believe God's Word here speaks not only to the Jews in the 5th century B.C. We believe he speaks through Nehemiah to us today. And we believe that God speaks into the broken down state of maybe our our relationships. Maybe for you it's a marriage. Maybe for you it's family relationships, extended family relationships. Maybe for you it's broken friendships. Maybe for you it's it's, it's the church. Maybe for you it's the larger community. Wherever it is, we believe that God burdens our hearts just as he did for Nehemiah for something that is broken that God wants to see rebuild. And so the pattern we've seen in the chapters of Nehemiah of this book so far, it's really a pattern for your life and for my life. It's a pattern for our church. It's a pattern for what we do as we reach across racial and ethnic lines in the Christian community around us. And just to give you a very brief overview, chapter 1, what do we see? We see that it begins when God puts a burden on your heart. 
as he did on Nehemiah's heart. He put a burden on him. He grieved him for what was going on in Jerusalem. That burden to rebuild, it's stirred by pain. For Nehemiah, there was great pain in seeing the state of Jerusalem and the Jews living there. Maybe for you and your marriage, it's the pain you're in the midst of. Maybe you and your relationship with your parents or your kids or extended family, it's the pain of conflict, conflicts there. Maybe for you, it's pain that you feel in your church, in your community. God begins with pain. That's how He creates a burden on our hearts to rebuild. And that burden is therefore then rooted in God's Word. For Nehemiah, he looked back at the promises of God, what God wanted for the Jews in Jerusalem, how God wanted them to be a city on a hill that drew the unbelieving world around him. And for you, maybe as you think about the relationship that God has burdened your heart to rebuild, it begins with the promises of God. Beyond even Nehemiah, what is it that God says in His Word that He wants for your marriage? for your relationship with your parents, for your relationship with your your children, for your relationship with family and friends? What is it that God wants for this church? What is it that God wants for our community and beyond? And so I, I, I hope that you are examining yourself as I encourage you in this outline. What are you grieved by? Where is the pain that you're feeling in your life? What does God's Word have to say about that? And then are you praying about that? Nehemiah's burden was, was formed into a vision for what God wanted him to do by four months of praying, praying throughout the day, God, what is it you want me to do about this, this thing that you have pained my heart with? Are you praying about what God has burn, burdened you with? And as you're praying, how is God speaking to you about what you should do with it? That's, that's really how Nehemiah and the lessons from it trickle into our lives. Then in chapters 2 and 3, we saw that a burden to rebuild, it always challenges the status quo, the homeostasis, that tendency that we have to keep things the same, that, that, that sometimes we prefer the pain of what is broken down around us to the, 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 what we think of as the fear of what it'll take to change. It always challenges the status quo. And a burden to rebuild always calls us to deal with the rubble. In Jerusalem, the walls had been broken down. The people were just used to walking around the stones that had accumulated in piles in the city. They just lived with the rubble. And we can get that way in our relationships. We can get that way in our church and our community where we don't deal with things that God really wants us to deal with. We just walk around the rubble. We just act like it's not there. But a burden to rebuild challenges that and forces us to have to deal with the rubble. In chapters 4 and 5, a burden to rebuild will always draw opposition. In Nehemiah's case, that opposition came from their enemies around them, the Samaritans and the Arabs and others, others of the provinces around them that didn't want to see Jerusalem rebuilt. They didn't want to see the glory restored to Israel. And we have an enemy. When, you, when God burdens your heart to work on your marriage, to, to work on your family, to, to, to remain committed to your church, to remain active in the Christian community around us, We have an enemy, the devil, who doesn't want to see that happen. He wants to see marriages break up. He wants to see families disintegrate. 
He wants to see churches overcome by division. He wants to see the larger Christian community divided by prejudice. And so the enemy works in various ways to try and keep us from proceeding, just like the enemies worked in Nehemiah's time, both externally and internally. We need to be willing to count the cost. We need to be willing to trust God that He will lead us through the opposition. That we need to trust God that as He allows opposition to come about in our lives, He allows that opposition to draw us into a deeper dependence upon Him. When we face opposition, when we seek to rebuild in some relational sphere, the truth is that the pain of that, the struggle of that, the opposition of that, not only deepens our dependence upon God, it deepens our love for God as we see Him through Jesus Christ lead us victoriously through it. This morning, we move on to chapter 6, and here in chapter 6, we see several specific threats, threats that Nehemiah faced as his enemies tried to stop the rebuilding there in Jerusalem, threats that even though the circumstances are different, threats that in, in their basic nature we face as we seek to rebuild whatever God has burdened your heart for, whatever relational area that is. We face similar threats as we work on our marriages, as we seek to allow God to change our families, as we seek reconciliation of broken friendships, as we seek to make our church healthier, as we seek to establish relationships beyond racial and ethnic lines in our community. We face these same kinds of threats. And the first threat is this. This is the way I've articulated it in your sermon outline. Your commitment to rebuild that burden that God has put on your heart in whatever relational sphere it is, your commitment to rebuild, it will be tested, and it will be tested, first of all, by distractions. We see this as chapter 6 opens in verse 1. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Aram, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though at that time I had not set the doors and the gates. And let me just pause there. Let me give you the little bit of the context that helps us understand the threat that that I think we face as well. Nehemiah's work on the walls not only was almost finished, but it had proceeded at a rate that none of his enemies would have ever expected. They have, in this short period of time, less than two months, this small force, about 2,000 people, maybe at the most, they had rebuilt over two miles of wall. They had done it all by hand. This was something that the enemies, when they first saw the Jews start to rebuild the wall, they never would have imagined that it had gone like this. And the only thing that was left to be completed was that the gates had been built, but the doors, the big wooden parts of the gates, had not yet been set in place. And so his enemies see a closing window of opportunity because once the gates are set in place, his enemies, they will no longer be able to sneak in. They'll no longer be able to enter the city. They will lose their ability to regain control over Jerusalem. And their only options will be to mount a siege or mount a direct attack. And that'll never happen in the kingdom of Persia because his enemies were all Persian provinces. And Judah is a Persian province. The king of Persia would not allow one province to attack another province. 
So they have this narrowing window of opportunity. If they don't strike now and stop this work before the gates are in place, their opportunity to keep some sense of control over the Jews and Jerusalem will pass forever. So how do they do it? Well, they try to stop the work at this time, at this point, by, by taking out the person who's leading the work. I mean, it's almost kind of a Jason Bourne type of campaign here that, you know, we need to take this guy out. We need to lure him out of the city in some way so we can take him out. We can eliminate him because he's the one that motivates and leads this building project. If he's gone, this won't happen. The walls will not be finished. And that's where we get into how they tried to distract him away from the work. Verse 2, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message Come, let us meet in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But then Nehemiah adds, he knew what was in their hearts. They were scheming to harm me. Verse 4 tells us four times they sent this message. Well, the plain of Ono, just, just again to give you a little bit of the setting, at first that is a reasonable proposal. The plain of Ono is, is located about halfway between the city of Jerusalem and the province of Samaria, where Sanballat and these other leaders were, they're proposing, you know, what could sound like a, a peace meeting. You know, come on out. We'll meet halfway between the two of us. We'll talk this situation through. We'll, we'll make sure that we're all on the same page. But this, this, this really, be, even though it was halfway between these two territories, it's, it's on the extreme edge of Judah, it's, it's out in territory that would have put, put Nehemiah in a very vulnerable place. He would not be able to be protected. It was easy territory to take him out. And at some level, he knew that that was what was behind their threat. And it was 27 miles away from Jerusalem, which means very little to us, I know, when, as we drive cars. But for Nehemiah, each way, that means over a day, and a, a day of traveling. So, Roughly three days of traveling, plus whatever time it took to meet with these guys. Nehemiah looks at that and says, you know, that will waste precious time to work on this wall. This, that will waste precious time that is needed to complete this project. He knows at some level, as he says there, they are scheming to harm me. Their, their, their proposal had the stench of treachery about it. He knows as well probably by their desperation. Do you notice in verse 4 how insistent they are? Four times they sent me the same message. That, that desperation must have convinced him that this, this plan is really about taking me out. And so in verse 3, what does he say? I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? He's wise. He, he, he is diplomatic. He does not immediately put out that, look, I know you're trying to take me out. He refuses their proposal based on the time that it would have taken him away from the work. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to meet with you? But I love how, what he, how he refers to the work. He calls it a, a great work. And, and don't take that as some prideful statement. That's really what he's saying is, this is an important work. This is an urgent work. This is something that is high priority to God. How can I leave this? I bet they laughed at him behind his back at this point. I mean, they knew that Nehemiah just a little bit earlier had been in the palace, had been in the capital of Persia. 
He had been really, really one of the, the, the men right under the Persian king. He had made major decisions there in the Persian capital. He had been a man of influence there. And he's left all that, and he's gone to this backwater town, to this broken-down city. And he's, what is he doing? He's doing manual labor to rebuild this wall. This is a great work, they thought. This is insignificant work is probably what they really thought. But Nehemiah knew that it was a great work. Nehemiah saw that it was a great work. Why? Because God's name was at stake. And he knew that it was more than about just rebuilding the walls. He knew that God wanted to be glorified again in Jerusalem. That God wanted to draw the nations to the place in which at his temple at that time, God manifested his presence. God wanted people who did not believe in him, to see his presence in Jerusalem and come and worship him, become his worshipers. So Nehemiah knew this was a great work because God's glory and God's name was at stake. And I I believe, brothers and sisters, I believe there's an application here for us. When you think about what it is that God has burdened your heart to rebuild, whether that's your marriage, your family, broken friendships, whether it's, it's, it's what's going on in this church, whether it's wider than that in our community, whatever it is. I'm sure there are people in your life, I'm sure there are people around us who look at that and say, why would she want to stay in that marriage? Why would he continue to hang in there with his parents? Why would, would, they, why would they continue to put up with that with their kid? Why would those people continue to stay in that church? Why would those people continue to try and reach across racial and ethnic lines? That is insignificant. And you watch the mainstream media and what it promotes as significant and important and what you should be doing. You hear the advice that you're given about what you should be doing relationally. And and you can see, you could start to feel like, like Nehemiah was probably feeling as these things were set upon behind his back about him. But here's the truth. What God calls you to rebuild in your marriage, in your family, in your friendships, what God calls us to rebuild as a church here at Central Church, what God calls us to build in our greater Christian community in the Memphis area here, it is a great work. Why? Because God's name is at stake. What God wants to do in your marriage can glorify Him. What God wants to do in your family can glorify Him. What God wants to do as he takes this church through a period of transition can glorify him. What God wants to do in this city as we reach across racial and ethnic lines can glorify him. It is a great work that God calls you to when he burdens your heart, when he burdens our hearts to rebuild. And so Nehemiah's perspective applies to us as well. It is a great work what God has burdened my heart to do because God's name is at stake. And that, brothers and sisters, is what we have to hang on to. That's what we have to hang on to in the midst of a difficult marriage or a challenging situation with your parents or your kids or extended family. That's what we have to hang on to as we pursue reconciliation in broken relationships where it's difficult. That's what we have to hang on to as we go through a period of transition in our church. That's what we have to hang on to as we reach beyond the walls of our church. It is a great work that God has called us to because His name is at stake. Secondly, the second threat your motives for rebuilding, why you're rebuilding, what's in your heart, in other words, your motives for rebuilding 
will be challenged and attacked. Not maybe, but will be challenged and attacked. If God has put a burden on your heart in one of these relational spheres, if God has put a burden on your heart to be part of this church as it goes through transition, if God has burdened your heart to reach beyond the walls of this church to the community around us, your motives, why you do that, will be challenged. They will be attacked. We see that in verse 5. The fifth time, this is the... the (coughs) the fifth time that that his enemies try and lure him out of Jerusalem. This time, Sanballat sent his aid to me with the same message, but in addition, in his hand was an unsealed letter. In other words, everybody can read it as it's making its way to Nehemiah in Jerusalem. And in this unsealed letter was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem the Arab says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah again. Now this report will get back to the king, the king of Persia, in other words. So come, let us confer together. This is, this is insidious. This, this letter this letter insinuates that there is a rumor that is circulating around the provinces that the real reason that the Jews are rebuilding the wall is because they intend to rebel against their Persian overlords. That as soon as they get the walls up and the gates in, they are going to rebel. This letter insinuates that the real reason that Nehemiah has come to to Jerusalem and is leading this work is he wants to be their king. He wants to be the next king, and he is planning to make himself king. Now, now just put yourself in Nehemiah's place for a minute as, as as you get this letter and you hear this report. We don't know if it's true or not that these rumors are circulating. This is going to start to naturally stir some anxiety, even some fear in, in, your, in your, your, your heart. Why? Because what happens if these rumors get back to the king of Persia? The king of Persia who has sent you to Jerusalem as a loyal governor of a Persian province to rebuild the city that it may be a loyal city to the kingdom of Persia. Well, I think my anxiety, my fear would tell me if those rumors get back to the king of Persia, he may think that I am actually planning to rebel. He may consider this an act of treason. And then my life and the life of all these people is going to be in danger. Notice how these rumors, they impute false motives to Nehemiah. They claim to be able to look in his heart and and say, we know what you're trying to do. You are about to become their king. Notice how these rumors misconstrue what is happening. Yes, they're building the wall, but they're doing it to rebel. That is the common thing about rumors. When you think about rumors of which you are the subject in some way of the rumors, those two things are often right there hand in hand. They misconstrue the little bit of facts that are in, that are maybe true in the rumor. They misconstrue that. They spin it, in other words. And as well, they, they impute false motives. They claim to say that the reason you're doing what you're engaged in is for some, some wrong purpose. They usually impute fa- not only false motives, but bad motives. And this is kind of a threat that is, that is common to us as we seek to rebuild. 
that our motives are often misconstrued by others. You you seek to hang in in a difficult marriage, and there will be people who say, well, she's just doing that so she can be financially secure, or he's just doing that because he doesn't want to pay alimony. You seek to hang in and pursue reconciliation in a conflicted friendship, and there, there will be people who, who say that your motives are, are mixed in some way. You, you seek to hang in to, in the midst of, of a church going through a transition, and your motives will be questioned. You seek to reach out across racial and ethnic lines. Your motives will be questioned, and what you're doing will be misconstrued. Notice how Nehemiah responds. Verse 8, I sent to him this reply, nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your own, out of your own head. He rejects the false interpretations of what he's doing. He, he doesn't get caught up in that. He only briefly responds enough to, to, to refute it. And, and I wonder if, if Psalm 37 was, was going through his, his head, if it really is what supported him. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn. He will make the justice of your cause shine in your life like the new day sun. Do not fret when people succeed in their evil ways. Refrain from anger. Turn away from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. I wonder if that's a psalm. I'm sure he knew the psalms. I wonder if that's a psalm that comforted him as it comforts me when I'm in the midst of similar situations. Nehemiah sets a model for you and me when our motives are attacked, when our actions are misconstrued. He rejects the false interpretations of what they're saying. He doesn't get caught up in trying to defend or justify or explain He only responds briefly to deny the truth of the rumors, and he goes right on doing what he knows God has called him to do. That speaks to you and to me. The fact that that people misrepresent and misinterpret what we're doing, that that can happen, that, that will happen, but that should never stop us from going forward with what God has burdened our heart to do. Don't get caught up when that happens and trying to defend yourself, and trying to justify what you're doing, and trying to explain. It will only pull you deeper into the anxiety. Do not fret. Do not give in to the anxiety, the psalmist is saying. It leads only to evil. Refrain from anger. Turn away from wrath. That's what we see Nehemiah modeling. And by the way, we see Nehemiah not only persisting in the work that God has called him to do, we see him persist in praying. That's just a common theme through all of this book. No matter what happens, he's there on his knees. He's there on his knees praying. Look at that in verse 9. He knows they were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work, or in other words, to become discouraged, and it will not be completed. But I pray, now strengthen my hands. I love that image of our, our hands getting weak in the work. Think of Think of holding a a hammer and hammering to the point where you're starting to get weary. You don't know if you can hang on to that hammer. You don't know if you can keep digging with that shovel any longer. That's how we feel sometimes in the midst of trying to rebuild in broken relationships. We get to that place where we're worn out physically and emotionally and spiritually, and we don't know if our hands can hang on and continue in the work anymore. We get discouraged. We experience some measure of despair. And so we, like Nehemiah, we pray, Lord, my hands are getting weak. Strengthen my hands. 
Give me courage. Give me resolve to stay in the work. Help me, Lord, stay committed to your way in the midst of this. Help me not to fret. Help me to persist in the work that you have called me to. Well, finally, I'm sure there are, there are many other threats that Nehemiah and the Jews face, but the last one, the third one that I see in this text is, and I've, I phrased it like this, your opportunity to rebuild, it can be jeopardized by reactivity. And I'll define reactivity in a moment, but let's look at where it com- comes from. Verse 10, one day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in his home. And he, that's Shemaiah, said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple. Let us close the temple doors. Why? Because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. This is even sneakier. Here's what's going on behind the scenes. Nehemiah's enemies know that they have been unsuccessful in trying to lure him out of Jerusalem where they have a clean opportunity to kill him and take him out. And so what they do is they find a Jewish prophet. He may have not been a real prophet, but this is somebody living in Jerusalem who at least had the reputation among the people of, being, of knowing God's will and being able to proclaim God's will. And they bribed him. They paid him. They paid him to say something that they thought would rattle Nehemiah to the core, that would cause anxiety and fear in him to the level where he would react and sin. That's what we see there in verse 10. Shemaiah urges Nehemiah, meet me in the house of God. Meet me in the temple, in other words. Meet me in the temple. We will close the temple doors so that you are in a safe and secure place. Why? Because basically assassins are coming for you. There's going to be somebody coming to kill you, and they're going to coming by night. This is the only safe place in the, in the city of Jerusalem. And I'm sure there had been enough intrigue that this wasn't unreasonable that his enemies were sending assassins against him. But notice, notice uh, you know, no, that, that, that Nehemiah says that, uh, that this was to cause him to, to sin against God. Nehemiah knows that the Mosaic law says that only priests can go into the temple. And even those priests, they can only go in at prescribed times of the year. And so Nehemiah probably even remembered that this had been tried before. A non-priest, even a king, Uzziah, had gone into the temple without God calling him in there. And what had happened? Uzziah had been struck by leprosy. Nehemiah knew it could be far worse for him. So he responds in verse 11, but I said, should a man like me run away? Or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this and that they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Nehemiah recognized that if he listened to this advice by Shemaiah and he acted on his anxiety, his fear that Shemaiah's false prophecy stirred up in him, that he would commit a sin by doing this. He would violate God's law that only a priest is to enter the temple. He would violate God's clear command. And I think that speaks to you and me. If someone, even somebody who means well, who wants what's best for us, somebody who may be a friend, someone who may even be a family member, 
If they look at the situation that you and I are in where we are trying to rebuild a relationship that is broken in some way, and their counsel to us either ignores God's clear commands or it contradicts, directly contradicts God's clear commands, no matter how well-intentioned they are, they are being used by the enemy to tempt us to sin. God will never call us to violate His Word when He calls us to rebuild. And so we, like Nehemiah, we need to, first of all, know God's Word and the boundaries there, but we need to orient how we are seeking to rebuild by God's Word. Nehemiah knew God's Word. Nehemiah prayed God's Word. So do you and I. Nehemiah, by the way, also realized that if he gave in to this anxiety and fear, he'd destroy his credibility as a leader. Look at Nehemiah. He's hiding in the temple. We're out here trying to finish the wall, and he's hiding in the temple. Not only that, he would increase the anxiety and the fear of the community. That's why he says, should a man like me run away? He knows it will destroy the work if he were to give in to his anxiety and fear. And that's what I mean by reactivity. When we give into our anxiety and our fears, we become reactive. And what happens when we do that, when we become reactive? When we become reactive, our impulses overwhelm our intentions. Our emotions override our reflective thinking and our prayerful thinking. Our fears obscure our Christian convictions and values. We, be, we become reactive, and it can destroy the work that God has called us to do and rebuilding. But Nehemiah models for us. Nehemiah stands on the rock of God's Word in the middle of the storm of the anxiety, the threat, and the fears that he faces, and that enabled him to make the God-honoring decision. We see it there, I will not go. I will not go. And because Nehemiah does that and he stays with the work, he doesn't give in to that reactivity, he doesn't allow his fear and his anxiety to overwhelm him, God is faithful. Look at verse 15, how we see God is faithfulness, how God works through man's faithfulness and faithfully brings about his result. The wall was completed on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. 52 days, a wall of two miles, either reconstructed or totally rebuilt in some sections, using manual labor by a force of probably less than 2,000 people. Verse 16, when all our enemies heard about all of this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that the work had been done with the help of our God. And when you, brothers and sisters, when you think about the work that God has called you to do, whatever relational sphere He has called you to rebuild in, here is the truth to us. God will be faithful to us. He'll be faithful to us when we too realize that the work of rebuilding that we have committed to can only be done with the help of our God. When we rely on Him, when He draws us into deeper dependence, He can accomplish what humanly other people think can never be accomplished. That marriage that people have written off can be rebuilt. That broken family situation that people say that's impossible to fix, that can be rebuilt. That, that church that, that can reach a degree of healthiness that people never thought was possible. Racial and ethnic lines can be crossed in ways that people never thought was possible. Now, let me just say this as I close. 
Nehemiah is to you and me a great example of what a faithful man or woman following God looks like. But we must be careful not to make this all about Nehemiah, not to make our focus all about Nehemiah. Because God has given us Nehemiah in the midst of all of the Bible to point us to the one that we ultimately look to. Nehemiah points us to Jesus Christ. Our Savior is not Nehemiah. Our Savior is not ourselves as we seek to follow Nehemiah's example. Our Savior, the one who empowers us to rebuild, is our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. I love how Nehemiah even points us to Christ. Look at in verse 2. This is in chapter 6 alone. Verse 2, what do we see? Nehemiah's enemies plotted to lure him to the plain of Ono in order to harm him. What does that remind us of? That reminds us, that points us to our Savior, Jesus, who in Matthew 26, we see his enemies, the chief priests and the elders, plotting to arrest him in a treacherous way and to kill him. We see Nehemiah point us to Christ in verse 7. Nehemiah's enemies threaten to tell the Persian king of Nehemiah's supposed rebellion. What does that remind us of? Of how Jesus in Luke 20 The scribes and the chief priests tried to get Jesus to say something that could be reported to the Roman governor as rebellion so that he would be arrested. One more, verse 15. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15. The wall was completed. Nehemiah completed the work of restoring God's glory to Jerusalem before all the surrounding nations. What does that point us to? That points us to what Jesus has done that he proclaims on the cross in John 19.30. It is finished. It is completed that on the cross, Jesus completed the saving work that is necessary to bring everyone who trusts in him into a new relationship with God. Are you trusting this morning in Jesus Christ and the saving work that He completed, that He finished on the cross to deal with your sin and my sin? Are you trusting in that? Have you responded to that in repentance and faith so that you may find peace with God? You may experience the glory of God. And if you have, Are you allowing the Holy Spirit this morning, maybe in that impossible, broken relationship situation that you are thinking about, are you allowing the Holy Spirit that is sent by Christ to indwell you, to fill you, to transform you, to empower you? Are you allowing Him to work and lead you in the work of rebuilding that He has called you to? If you have not done either of those this morning, today is an opportunity. Today is an opportunity to respond to him in repentance and faith. And I give you that opportunity even as we close now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word which speaks to a situation so many centuries before we were ever even alive. And yet it speaks across the centuries to us. And we thank you for how what we see in Nehemiah points us to what you are doing in our lives now in Jesus Christ and how you want his work not only in saving us but in renewing us and transforming us. You want that to transform our marriages, our families, our relationships, our church, our community, and our world. 
Lord, if there's anyone here who has not yet responded to Jesus Christ and looked to His completed, His finished work on the cross, even this morning, may they come forward, Lord, as we close in prayer. May they come forward, Lord, and, and, and confess You as Savior and Lord, cry out to You as Nehemiah modeled crying out to You. And Lord, for those of us who maybe are burdened down by brokenness in the relationships that we're thinking of this morning, Lord, fill us afresh with the confidence that you work by the power of your Spirit, by how you are transforming us, and you want your glory to be restored in our relationships. We pray this in Jesus' awesome name. Amen.